0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Lone Star College Works for Texas, providing real-world workforce training in state-of-the-art facilities to meet employers' demands. Learn more at lonestar.edu. And Texas Conference for Women. Don't miss the latest episode of Women Amplified, featuring barrier-breaking ballerina Misty Copeland and target EVP and Chief External Engagement Officer Leisha Ward. Find out more at conferenceforwomen.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for March 24th, 2023. I'm Matthew Watkins, a raspy voiced Matthew Watkins, managing editor of news and politics for the Tribune. I uh, lost my voice a couple days ago, but it's coming back slowly, so bear with me, listeners. Uh, this week, I am joined by uh, reporter Zach Despard. Hey, Zach. Hey, Matthew. Hey, and we are going to talk a little bit about Zach's most recent story on the Uvalde shooting. Um, in the months after the school shooting in Uvalde, much of the discourse has been around the tragic 77 minutes between when the gunmen entered Rob Elementary School and when police finally shot and killed him. There's been blame centered at the Uvalde school police chief, at the lack of a real incident commander on the scene, questions about training and and accusations of, you know, just kind of plain cowardice against the police officers that many have noted that lives might have been saved if the police hadn't gotten into the classroom where the shooter was holed up sooner. And this week, Zach, you know, based on, had published a a major kind of story based on a comprehensive review of of videos and and interviews with police after the scene, interviews conducted by law enforcement that we gained access to, in which he pointed to one big reason for that delay that has maybe not been discussed as much as others, and that is the fear of the AR-15. Zach, tell us a little bit about what kind of led you to the conclusion and what you saw in those videos and in those interviews that made you think that this was such a driving force in that slow response
2: in the fall we obtained a a trove of investigative records related to the shooting and, and one of the most important uh, parts uh, of that set of records was the interviews that investigators did with the police who responded to the shooting. And there were, as many listeners know, uh, close to 400 officers who ultimately responded to the shooting. We in particular were interested in the initial officers uh, and what they said about what happened because that's really where the police response falls apart because the police arrived very quickly within about three minutes. Um, And then that's where that that delay starts, and then it persists for more than an hour. And in listening to the interviews that those officers gave with investigators, they repeatedly said that once they learned that the gunman inside the classroom had an AR-15-style rifle, that is when they abandoned their plan to immediately confront him. At that point, they decided it was better to evacuate other parts of the school and to wait for the arrival of a border patrol SWAT team to confront the shooter, even though that uh, SWAT team was based 60 miles away. For us, uh, this seemed to be a significant and in some ways uh, overlooked uh, part of the shooting response because uh, this Is what this fear, this apprehension to confront this type of rifle is what sets in motion the disastrous response that follows. So we wanted to in this story. Dive into what was significant about uh, the use of this rifle. How did it uh, impact how many people have killed? How did it uh, ultimately shape the police response that followed? Uh, And that is what we hope we accomplished in this this pretty comprehensive
1: story. Yeah, and so the story mentions a few different scenes where you kind of see that, and most particularly, like you said, that very initial response where there's a handful of police officers who enter the school, you know, minutes if not seconds after the, the shooter kind of approach the adjoined, the door to one of the adjoined classrooms where the shooter is inside, get kind of basically to the door, and then bullets fired from that gun, you know, going through the walls, going through metal doors grazing the heads of the police officers that causes them to immediately kind of retreat from the situation and then you hear them sort of saying you know he has an AR AR like that 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 phrase that that kind of hyper awareness of the particular type of gun he has what what other kind of comments or um, you know, moments in that scene really stood out to you as you re- result, reviewed those that footage.
2: Yeah, this was a particularly important uh, question for us to answer, in part because uh, some policymakers have said that the the type of weapon used in the shooting was was not significant; that it wouldn't have mattered um, what type of gun it was, and the interviews from police. Uh, suggests otherwise, and in fact, like, directly contradicts that. So the officers, these initial ones who were driven back and, and begin the, the delay, uh, repeatedly make reference to the fact that uh, this rifle, like most rifles, um, can penetrate their body armor. They, they talk about how, you know, if we went right in, went into that class of good with that gunman, there was a high likelihood that we would be killed. And that was a determining factor as to why they did not do that now in in talking with police experts uh people who have experience developing active shooter policy uh, those experts said that the uh police officers here like logically concluded that they would be killed like that was uh an accurate uh, assessment of the situation however that should not have stopped them from um, overcoming that apprehension overcoming that fear And still doing their jobs, as as we've we've well established and written extensively about uh, since the shooting last year, the modern active shooter policy is to confront shooters as soon as possible without delay, because the number one priority is to stop the killing. That's not what happened here. Uh, What these um, investigative interviews revealed is that the apprehension about the gun uh, was a significant reason why we had spent. uh, a bit of t- uh, time in the story explaining, you know, okay, what, what exactly makes the AR-15 style rifle unique or what, why is it used in mass shootings? Uh, because there has been, you know, uh, quite a bit of, of, of writing about this kind of rifle. Some of it's not very nuanced and some of it, um, some of the rhetoric from politicians, especially Democrats, uh, misstates or overstates sort of the, the power of the rifle. Uh, And what we dive into in the story is, you know, the the AR-15 was was developed in the late 1950s um, as a a next generation military rifle. It was adopted by the U.S. military in the early 1960s, uh, and the military renamed it the M-16, a very famous weapon that many uh, listeners are familiar with. Uh, and that uh, rifle design we noted in the story is it, still used today by uh, American soldiers on the battlefield. The primary difference between the military-style AR-15 and the civilian weapon available to any adult to purchase is that the military weapon fires automatically, and the civilian version only fires semi-automatically, meaning you have to pull the trigger each time you want to fire. Uh, this is the the only major difference between the two types of rifles. And in the context of mass shootings, uh, we write in the story uh, that is not a, a meaningful difference because in both cases, both rates of fire, uh, someone can kill a room full of people in seconds and that's what happened in Uvalde.
1: right. And so you have, you know, quotes from, from police officers, the, um, the quote in the headline, he has uh, a battle rifle. You have police officers asking each other, what, what's the safest way to do this? I'm, I'm not trying to get clapped out. You have uh, the police chief, the Uvalde School District police chief, Pete Arredondo, saying, you know, essentially um, to interviewers, uh, investigators afterwards, you know, I knew the fire, firepower he had based on what shells I saw, the holes in the wall in the room next to his. The, the preservation of life, everything around was a priority. You know, that was him explaining kind of why they didn't go in immediately. um oh, it, it, it just seemed to weigh on the minds of so many people. You, you described kind of how it's such a powerful weapon. But I mean, one, I guess maybe I'd like you to expand on that a little bit. I mean, what is the difference between having someone hold up in a room with, say, a handgun, compared to this particular weapon? How might that change the calculus for a police officer?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the type of, of round used by AR-15 style rifles is uh, on the smaller side of, of rifles. Um, there are uh, many, many rifles, especially ones if you're going to hunt um, larger animals that are more powerful um, shot for shot than the AR-15 is. Um, what makes uh, the AR-15 uniquely suited for combat is uh, it can fire very rapidly, uh, even on semi automatic. Uh, it has a, a high magazine capacity. Uh, in this case, the this, this shooter used 30 round magazines. Uh, it is very lightweight. It is very easy to operate. It doesn't jam easily, um, and very easy for even a novice uh, user to operate. Uh, though that the, the ar 15 round is on the smaller side of rifle rounds it is significantly more powerful than handgun rounds in in our store we noted you know if we're comparing it to the just the the standard sort of police round that they use in their pistols uh, it's about three times as powerful and what i mean by powerful is the bullets from an ar-15 have three times the energy uh, than the typical uh, police handgun bullet in turn that means uh, those rounds cause significantly Uh, more lethal wounds to the human body according to some medical research in ballistics than typical handgun rounds would and the important distinction here for police is um police typically on patrol will wear uh ballistic vests that are only rated for handguns so uh this type of rifle round uh, can quite easily penetrate um those vests and uh, a couple readers that had pointed out um that the Uvalde uh, Police Department had uh, received, they posted on Facebook they had received uh, rifle-rated vests back in 2018 for all of their officers, and most police departments have uh, these rifle-rated vests. Uh, people on patrol typically do not wear them uh, because they are they're heavy, they are bulky, um, they're kind of hard to, to to ride around in a car with, um, and that is why those initial officers who who rushed right to Rob Elementary when they heard the call because. Every second matters in this kind of response. That's why they talk about the fact that um, their vests would not have stopped those rounds.
1: Right. So there's there just because you have the equipment doesn't necessarily you ha- mean you have the equipment on you and you're running into a school, which is a very important factor here with what your goal is, is to stop the shooting as quickly as possible. It's it's less useful to have to turn around and go, you know, find that equipment and, and, and put it on as well. Um, yeah. I want to I want to build a little bit on what you talked about, about the ease of use, because that's another very important component of your story, because I think one thing that you very kind of dramatically and interestingly laid out was the kind of novice capabilities of the shooter in this incident and and things that you saw, you know, and, and, and for instance, the f- surveillance footage of the shooter buying it and 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 how basically this type of gun allows for someone who might not have any kind of training in the use of handguns or in, you know, it's basically, you know, combat to be such an intimidating force. I mean, it's it's important to remember here, we're, we're talking about eventually, you know, we're talking about dozens and eventually hundreds of police officers who have been through training going against an 18 year old here. And, and 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 kind of you make a case that the gun is is part of the reason why i mean is is really i wouldn't say part of the reason i would say is the main reason why it still felt like such a dangerous situation to them
2: yeah so we thought it was particularly important to include the historical perspective of this type of rifle because it informs um the sort of present discussion about it uh you know part of the reason why uh the military adapted this kind of rifle in the first place is because it was so easy to operate, because they want to keep things as as simple as possible um, for soldiers. Uh, Some research that the the Defense Department had done uh, in the early 1960s was they concluded that this rifle would be ideal for uh, our South Vietnamese allies because um, they had less training than our soldiers did. Um, This was a lighter rifle uh, than the typical rifle at the time, and it was easier for them to use. Um, all of that—that that ease of use applies now, currently to to novice users. What we know from the investigative files is uh, that the first time that this shooter in Uvalde ever fired a gun was most likely uh, the day of the shooting when he actually began um, the killing spree. Uh, this rifle, um, because it's easy to operate. Uh, sort of allows people who don't have a background, if they have that ill intent, to be able to, to carry out what they intend more easily than, than other types of, of guns would. Um, we obtained, uh, as part of the the records, the surveillance footage of the Uvalde gunman uh, picking up one of the two rifles he, he purchased right before the shooting. And in that footage uh, from the, it's a local gun store in Uvalde, uh, the clerk sort of puts the rifle on the counter. Uh, the gunman takes it up and he peers down the barrel and he puts his finger on the trigger. Um, and that's significant because, you know, one of the cardinal rules of gun safety is is to never put your finger on the trigger uh, unless you are uh, intending to fire the weapon and to treat every single weapon all the time as if it were loaded. Um, that uh, was a potential red flag for the gun store that, that this user... Um, was not experienced. Uh, it didn't mean they had to um, not transfer the weapon to him. It was, you know, up to up to their discretion. Uh, but one of the glaring things about this investigation is that there were many red flags to various potential authorities that um, this shooter, uh, you know, had had an ill intent, you know, he, he in the eight months, uh, eight, I'm sorry, eight days, he was eligible to purchase uh, a firearm in Texas because he had to be 18. He turned 18 um, just a, a week before the shooting. In those eight days, he purchased two AR-15-style rifles and more than 2,000 rounds of ammunition. Right? Um, if, uh, if the gun store employees or if his friends or if his family members who knew he had acquired these weapons had alerted someone beforehand, um, we might be having a very different conversation right now. Uh, and that speaks to, um, sort of, you know, uh, there's an argument that the, the fact that, uh, you had to be 18 before you purchase a rifle, um, prevented him from doing so until he turned that, that age would, would more strict regulations, um, such as increasing the age to purchase these rifles have, uh, had an impact
1: here. Yeah. All right. Let's pause for a second and hear from our sponsors.
0: Methodist Healthcare Ministries is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. And UT Dallas is the third highest-ranked public university in Texas by U.S. News and World Report. Surprised? Find out more at utdallas.edu. Okay, Zach, one other thing that I want to
1: kind of ask you about here is the idea of confronting someone with this type of weapon, right? There are examples of people doing this heroically, you know, One example you mentioned in the story is the the Sutherland Springs shooting, right, where someone uh, near the church where that that shooting occurred, um, heard of the shooting going on, grabbed his own, kind of AR-15 weapon in confront of the shooter. But there are also many examples of police officers, you know, not just in Uvalde, but elsewhere being similarly cowed by that weapon, you know, um, or by, by other significant weapons. I mean, you know, there are there are the, the Parkland shooting, um of course in um in in Florida where the 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 first responding officer reportedly hesitated. Um it of course took a very long time for the um authorities in at Columbus to um, to confront the shooter there, I mean one question that you kind of sought to address in this story was what what is necessary, what kind of training preparation is necessary for police officers or maybe other people, and in, for instance, military environments to kind of fight that instinct to retreat when confronted with this kind of firepower. What 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 can you say about that dynamic and um and and you know how that might inform what law enforcement does in similar situations in the future
2: so the law enforcement experts we talked to agree that it's still like the, the best policy is to confront the shooter immediately mm-hmm. so that is like why don't police always do that well and really we wanted to really dive into like okay, what is it like psychologically to to be in a gunfight? Because you know, objectively, it seems like stressful, but like, what what actually does that you know do to the body? And you know, the we talked to a, a police firearms trainer who really walked us through like uh, being in, the, in a gunfight of any kind it puts an incredible amount of stress on the body, right? So your uh, your critical thinking slows, like your ability to execute motor skills, like really sort of gets retarded. Um, And that's when like your body has to be able to just function on muscle memory and be able to mentally overcome a very natural fear of the body feels uh, and physically be able to execute the actions to to confront a shooter. And the only way to do that, to to make sure your body responds like that is to have uh, regular, as realistic as possible, Training for active shootings—it's not sitting in a classroom doing eight hours on a PowerPoint. It's like actually having simulated uh, gunfights uh, and keeping up that training. Uh, that's that's the best way you can possibly uh, equip police officers to be able to confront shooters. Uh, the problem with that is, uh, and, and police experts concede this, is that it's that's not a guarantee. You don't actually know how you'll perform. In a gunfight until you are actually in one, even if you have training, right? And because shootings, uh, especially mass shootings, happen at random places at random times, we have no idea like what the first officer on the scene, who they're going to be, and what their training is going to be. So right. the police officers, um, who again, you know, this this response was was embarrassing for the police um, profession, right? Uh, they want to improve training. They think these officers perhaps could have benefited from better training, more intense training, but there is no guarantee that it will ultimately lead to a better response.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Second point to that, which is one of the most important points of this whole discussion, is sometimes it does not matter at all. And what I mean by that is most mass shootings end in less than five minutes. In the case of Ubaldi, most of the people who were killed were killed in the three minutes before police got there. Mm-hmm. So even if they had responded flawlessly and confronted the shooter and killed him right when they got there, we would still be talking about almost the same death toll. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want that point to be lost on breeders because when you build uh, a policy framework around relying on police to Uh, quickly confront active shooters, which they do sometimes well, sometimes poorly. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't matter at all. And that shifts the policy questions back onto, you know, what are we doing to decrease the likelihood that these events occur at all? Because we
1: know sometimes
2: they unfold quicker than even our best trained police can get there.
1: Yeah, the the, the answer to my next question might be, be fairly obvious but it's probably worth asking anyways is i mean what do we know about lawmakers willingness to confront the issues you raise in this story is this is this something they're interested in or willing to grapple with as i mean we're in the middle of a legislative session right now
2: yeah that's it's a crucial question i mean the first point to make is there are no easy policy solutions to mass shootings mm-hmm is uh, talking with the, the experts who, who researched this. I read two books on this topic for this story. Um, gun policy is definitely one of the policy areas, but it is by no means um, the only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of, of talking about guns, and there's been a lot of discussion about how do we get, uh, how do we prevent vulnerable people like this shooter from getting weapons, including weapons um, like the IR-15-style rifle. Uh, that has been a request, uh, particularly of many of the, the victims' families in Uvalde who have spent quite a bit of time at the Capitol in the session. But it, in Texas, even now, it's it's a non-starter. Um, there are no serious discussions in the legislature right now about passing any of the bills proposing restrictions on firearm access. That has been the case after past mass shootings and the, you know, Evaldi families had, had thought and, and still think um, that, you know, maybe, maybe this will be different because here we have evidence that we didn't have previously that, that the type of weapon used in the shooting, in officers' own words, affected how they responded. It, dri- it drove their delay. Um, that is unlikely to have an impact on uh, whether these, these bills pass or fail.
1: Perfect so this story um not surprisingly uh, struck a nerve um uh, among a lot of people um not only but especially on you know supporters of gun rights um and and we heard a lot of uh comments from folks um affiliated with that cause or or her, or who feel strongly about you know uh, maybe this weapon in particular or, or or maybe just gun rights in general and I would say, The two overarching kind of responses to it that we heard from people was one, I think, just sort of an insistence on, um, you know, the idea of police didn't do their jobs. This cowardice was to blame. Like We know that a gun is dangerous, but that's that if you if you're not willing to do this, then you shouldn't be a police officer. The other one that i think we've heard some is that this gun is not altogether that different than others in this situation i mean one person has has pointed out to us that you know and as you said earlier that there are other more powerful more damaging rifles such as as honey certain hunting rifles and things like that that could do even you know a a gunshot from one of those rifles could do even more harm than a shot fired from an ar-15 um what what, what response if any do you have to those kind of kind of types of responses to, to, to the story here
2: so on on the broader question about I think a lot of people in the gun rights community are are hostile to restricting gun access because um, they don't they don't see any relation between their ownership of guns and the fact that some people, uh, use them to, to commit violence and a very small fraction of that use mm-hmm. them in mass shootings. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I mean, m- most gun owners, including most people who own AR-15 style rifles, use them safely and mm-hmm. store them responsibly. Mm-hmm. So the, the broader policy question is how do we, you know, prevent the very small subset of people who are going to use them to kill people from accessing their weapons. Like that's the harder question. But I, I understand that point of view. The second question on the the particulars about what makes this rifle unique. What we try to do in this article is not focus on any particular part, facet of the AR-15 style rifle uh, and more focus on the factors together that make it useful uh, for, uh, useful is the wrong word, but you understand what I'm saying, Uh, in a mass shooting. so the uh, for example, the rate of fire for a semi-automatic rifle is the same as it would be for a semi-automatic pistol, like a handgun that police use. Mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. the round is more powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the rifle side, yes, there are plenty of hunting rifles that are more powerful um, from a ballistics perspective than the AR-15. However, they have a much slower rate of fire. They have much smaller magazines. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at uh, what makes the AR-15, you uh, unique in this context is think about the same reasons why the military still uses the style of rifle, um, are the same reasons why it is popular for mass shootings.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It fired it quickly because it is easy to operate. It has a high magazine capacity. It is lightweight. It is accurate. It doesn't have that many problems and is unlikely to jam. Yep. Uh, so collectively all those reasons together are, are what makes this weapon stand out and what make it, uh, lately the
1: weapon of choice for mass shootings. All right, well, thank you, Zach. It is is certainly a powerful and important article. Um, I recommend folks who haven't read it to, to check it out at texastribune.org. If you, if you use it, Google um, Texas Tribune AR-15, it will be the first um, result that pops up as well. That's about all the time that we have today. Thank you to Zach. Thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Lone Star College, the Texas Conference for Women, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, and UT Dallas. We'll talk to you all next week.
0: Join us on April 13th for a conversation and book signing event with Roxana Asgarian, Texas Tribune reporter and author of We Were Once Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. RSVP at texastribune.org slash events.